Welcome to The Loved with me, John Dottie. It's easy to feel the benefits of my spiritual awareness and connectedness when everything in my life is going smoothly. But what happens when things fall apart? How do I pull from the strength and power of my spiritual connection when my mind is flooded with frustration, grief, or despair? What happens if I get sick? What happens if I must face a frustrating situation? What happens when I'm filled with self-doubt? Just a few weeks ago, I set out to make this podcast episode about dealing with grief. Since I'd been working on a chapter about grief in my book, I thought it would make for a robust episode since the information was fresh in my mind. But when I sat down to write out the episode notes, our family dog got sick and lost the ability to walk on his back legs. His health deteriorated over the course of the next week until we had to say goodbye to our four-legged family member. My writing on the spiritual aspect of grief looks good on paper, but in the midst of the pain within myself and the pain I felt coming from my family, those ideas provided little comfort. And in a moment of ragged grief, I thought my faith was flagging and I struggled to listen to my own advice. I began to feel like a fraud. Were my spirituality and philosophy wrong? Did I not really believe the words are right, or was I just incapable of following through? All of these feelings of self-doubt flooded my mind, even before our dog was gone. Again, I want to mention that I live with a mood disorder that can amplify emotions brought on by stressful or intense situations. Sometimes I fail to take the illness into account, and the result is often intense frustration when I find myself struggling to cope. But I also have a strong support network in place, people who are willing to grab my hand and guide me through whatever crisis I might be facing. I mention this because it is important that we are unafraid and unashamed to reach out when we are faced with grief and sorrow. There is no rule that says we have to face grief alone. There are times when we may be reluctant to share our grief with others in fear that we will burden them, but that's not true. To those who care for us, the expression of love that comes through their support far outweighs any sympathetic pain they may experience. Now I'll be honest. I wasn't ready to have my faith and philosophy tested the way that they were. I suppose that's just how life's tests work, though, as a pop quiz. And as I said, I was working on my book and had just wrapped up a chapter on grief. I thought that would be a great topic for a podcast, so I sat down and started writing. 
But within an hour, things started to go horribly wrong. The details aren't too important here. Suffice to say that our family dog suffered a neurological event in his spine a long time ago, but accelerated rapidly towards the end. We'd hoped that losing his ability to walk on his back legs would be the worst of it, but it became painfully obvious that his condition was getting worse. There was no treatment or cure. Nothing could have been done to save him. And a week after he had stopped being able to walk on his back legs, he was gone. Now, for the last week of our dog's life, the way that I process grief went through a metamorphosis. You know, in 1969, psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross described five commonly experienced stages of grief. These are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Now, this model isn't fixed. These stages don't necessarily occur in any order, can occur simultaneously or not at all. And some stages may be repeated or revisited later on, even after the acceptance stage. In this case, I processed the grief of impending loss in a way I couldn't have imagined. In my writing, I was trying to describe a way to detach and muscle through grief to get to acceptance as quickly as possible. I didn't write that we ought to ignore the pain of loss or any emotions that come with it, but to try and put things in a frame that fosters acceptance closer to the beginning of grief. But my writing was much more academic than I'd hoped for. I wrote that we can think of grief in particular ways and those frames can help lessen the pain and move us closer to acceptance, but I hadn't come up with the how, or a way to actually do such a thing while in the grip of pain. I have to admit that I beat myself up a little because I felt like I wasn't practicing what I preach. I started to feel like I was a fraud. I know that isn't the case and I've forgiven myself for the self-punishment, but in reality it was just a deflection or, to be accurate, it was a defense mechanism. As I mentioned, I live with bipolar mood disorder. I take medication, I have therapy, and I have devised my own meditations and techniques to deal with the ups and downs, the depression and the mania. Despite the obstacles, I have an amazing life, and I'm happy even when my brain chemistry tries to tell me otherwise. But, and maybe because of how well the illness is managed, I can forget that I have to be extra cautious in emotionally charged and traumatic situations. Situations that can cause the release of hormones and other chemicals that affect mood. The tools and techniques I've used to prevent bipolar depression or mania from affecting my behavior don't work the same when outside stimulation, like grief, are present. Grief isn't a simple subject. It is much more complicated than cause and effect, or five easy-to-define stages. There is a biology to grief, and evidence suggests an evolutionary necessity. It may not be that grief itself is a useful evolutionary necessity, but is a side effect of our tribal instincts or need for the protection of our tribe or community. How grief manifests will be different for everyone and will be unique to every loss we experience. We can even feel the pain of loss sympathetically. If we are empathic, we may even experience another person's grief. But what is grief anyway? What makes us feel the pain of loss more or less from one to the next? First, grief is a collection of emotions evoked as a response to loss, or even to the fear of loss. If we dig deeper, we can see that grief is rooted in fear, 
When we lose someone or something we cherish, we enter new territory, a world without the object of what we cherished. We came to rely on or expect the presence of what we've now lost. That loss can make us afraid of the uncertainty that follows. What's the first emotion you think of when you hear the word grief? Is it sadness? Is it anger? Is it fear? Whatever emotions come along, grief is a natural response to loss or to the fear of loss. So what dictates the intensity of the emotions we feel during grief or in any of its stages? The first part of this is attachment. Can we grieve the loss of something we have no attachment to? Probably not. Is it then the strength of the attachment that determines the intensity of what we feel as we experience grief? In my experience, not so much. Instead, and understand I have no scientific evidence to back up what I'm about to say. Instead, I think the intensity of the many emotions we feel in grief are directly proportional to our expectations of the permanence of what we've lost or what we might lose. It is that expectation that fuels denial and the chaos of denying the reality that stares us in the face incites or adds fuel to the other emotions associated with our grief. I don't want to paint with two broad strokes. The only thing that is absolutely true for every human is physical death. I can speak only to my own experience and the assumptions I've made about what I've observed. No two experiences are exactly the same, no matter how similar they may appear. We can experience the loss of a loved one much differently than another. Two people will experience the loss of a person they both love in different ways. There are too many variables to calculate what might alter our perceptions and the effect grief will have on us at any given moment. Environment, age, experience, community, relationships, any or all of these things can impact the way we deal with grief. There too is an often overlooked sixth stage of grief, guilt. To what degree does guilt drive the intensity and duration of grief? I don't think guilt is always present, but in my experience, it is present often enough to be mentioned. These thoughts come from my own experience. When my maternal grandmother died, it was completely expected. Our whole family had the blessing of the opportunity to say goodbye, each on our own. My grandmother was wise and kind and did everything she could to give us immediate closure. Her aim, as she told us directly, was for us to not grieve. Instead, I felt crippling grief, such as I'd never experienced before and hoped to never experience again. But a few months later, my grandfather passed away. My reaction to his death was more disappointment that I wouldn't be able to do the things that we had planned on for that summer. I was sad. And I still miss him, but the acceptance of my loss came quickly. I felt guilty about that. I know I didn't love him any less than my grandmother, and I was just as close to him as I was with her. Our relationship was different, of course, but was that the key difference? And why was I feeling guilty for not feeling the same intense grief I had felt for my grandmother? I pondered that for ages, and I'm not sure I have the right or at least complete answer today. 
I am sure I know what I felt guilty about. I felt guilty that I hadn't seen him since his wife's funeral. I felt guilty that I didn't come to see him when he got sick, even though he told me not to. Mostly, though, I felt guilty that I didn't grieve enough. That last bit got me thinking, and I wondered, do we turn up the volume on our grief to lessen our guilt? In other words, do we intentionally intensify or prolong our grief because of some arbitrary expectation of what that grief is supposed to look like? I think the answer to that is sometimes. I've had people tell me that they felt guilty that they didn't feel enough pain or that they couldn't grieve enough for the loss of someone dear to them. More than one person told me that they were afraid of what other people would think of them if they didn't show enough grief. Again, I'm talking about expectations. Okay, so let's look briefly at the other stages of grief and see if we can find where expectations play a role. Denial. In grief, it's easy to deny the truth of what has happened, of the loss itself. I don't want this loss to be real. This can't be happening. How can they be gone? I can't live without them. I will never be whole again. The birthplace of this denial is the expectation we had that whatever we lost was permanent. We expect that we'll always have the thing or person we want in our lives. Whether sudden or progressive, the reality of impermanence appears. Anger I don't recall a time when I didn't feel some amount or form of anger in my grief. Anger is a companion to guilt, so if we experience guilt and grief, anger is hitching a ride. The anger happens when we take the loss personally. Maybe the loss was the result of injustice. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe it was sudden. Maybe it was a prolonged illness. In every case, the feeling is personal because something was taken from me. If I feel guilt, I've directed my anger inward. I might be angry at the person or pet I've lost for getting sick or injured. I might be angry at another person that caused the loss. I might be angry at the weather. I might likely be angry at God for allowing such a thing to happen. It's the same, though, that I've lost something that I expected to remain. Whether it is a person, a pet, or a thing, or a situation such as a relationship or job. Bargaining. This could be a tricky one because bargaining in the face of loss often requires a good bit of mental gymnastics. We're either begging our God to prevent the loss or trying to figure out how it could have been avoided. If we're in enough distress, we may escape reality enough to hope that time can be rolled back and the loss undone. But what are we bargaining for? We're asking that what we expected to be there be returned to us. Depression. Depression is multifaceted. It is more than sadness, sorrow, and or melancholy. There are things going on physically as well as the emotions that are swirling around in our minds. Of all these stages, this is the one I try to avoid the most. This is the one I want you to avoid too. I think it's easy to see what role expectation plays in depression too. 
Any aspect of grief can drive us into depression, but in my case, it's the realization of just how powerless I am to control the world around me and maintain my expectations, to keep them right where they are. When we make our way into depression, all the other stages are free to come in and dance inside our heads. We may lose interest in things we once enjoyed. We may feel guilty about enjoying anything. We may become irritable and angry at anything or everything. We may despair and feel hopeless. We may feel out of place. Our work and our relationships may and likely will suffer. Clinical depression is a massive subject, one much too large for this episode. It is as much physiological as it is psychological. According to Psychiatry.org, 1 in 15 adults will experience clinical depression in any given year, and nearly 17% of people will experience depression in their lifetime. I'm talking about major depressive disorder, not the sadness that often comes during times of grief. The symptoms of depressive disorder or a depressive episode are feeling sad or having a depressed mood, loss of interest or pleasure in activities once enjoyed, changes in appetite, weight loss or gain unrelated to dieting, trouble sleeping or sleeping too much, loss of energy or increased fatigue, increase in purposeless physical activity such as the inability to sit still, pacing or hand-wringing, or slowed movements or speech. These actions must be severe enough to be observable by others. Feeling worthless or guilty. Difficulty thinking, concentrating, or making decisions. Thoughts of death or suicide. While grief, no matter how profound, is unlikely to be the cause of a mood disorder, it can certainly exacerbate an underlying condition. If you experience these symptoms I listed for more than a couple of weeks, and it's disrupting your life, please speak with your doctor, psychiatrist, or other mental health professional right away. Now, as far as the melancholy we might expect with loss and grief, I'm still inclined to avoid it as much as I can. Misplaced sympathy from others can be enabling and give us an easy excuse to wallow in our sorrow. I do want to make clear, however, that I am not advocating stuffing or deflecting the emotions that we feel when we grieve. These emotions are there for a reason and can give a lot of benefits. The trick is to frame those emotions in context and explore the way we feel. Grieving is a process and the harder we fight that process, the longer we'll be stuck in its cycle. I'm not suggesting that there is a right or wrong way to work through grief. Every instance is unique, and there is no one-size-fits-all way to deal with emotional pain. In my most recent experience, I learned a lot. I was able to reinforce some things I knew, learn some things I didn't, and dispel some things I thought were true. Once I got over my initial shock, and with the help of a therapist, I found something important. See, I have a habit of intellectualizing everything, trying to rationalize my emotions. This is the technique I use to manage the mood shifts and cycles of bipolar disorder. It's very effective for that because I don't have to ascribe an event or situation to the way the moods feel. If I'm depressed, I don't question it and try to figure out what I could be depressed about. It's just chemical imbalance that is part of the illness, not something that has occurred. 
The same is true for mania. I don't question it and try to find something I should be so elated, excited, or angry about. Again, it's just chemical. But what if something really happens? What if I fall in love, win a prize, get an award? That's not chemical, that's real stuff to be excited about. What if I lose someone or something I care about? What if I miss out on an opportunity? What if I realize something I'd hoped for is unlikely or impossible to realize? Is that just chemical or do I have a solid reason to be sad or disappointed? Personally, the thing I do to deal with feelings with one thing don't translate to things that happen in my environment. Emotions that are evoked externally can't just be shut down or dismissed as easily, and it's not healthy to do so anyway. Instead, and I believe this works the same for people who don't have mood disorders, I need to embrace the emotions, welcome them, thank them. It makes me sad that my sweet dog isn't around anymore. I miss him, and I miss our routines. See, this is where acceptance comes in. I want to deny the reality of my loss. I, I don't want it to be so. But I know that what I want and what I have are not the same. Instead of suppressing this idea, I pause and then give myself permission to be illogical and deny it if I want to. In a way that breaks the spell. I'm acknowledging my wish without validating the fantasy. Before he was put to sleep, but when it was obvious that was the inevitable conclusion, I caught myself having a flicker of anger at my dog because he was sick. Instead of chastising myself for being irrational, I took a moment to appreciate what I was feeling. A pause long enough to understand what that feeling meant. The anger was a manifestation of the fear I was repressing. Fear of loss. Fear of losing a cherished friend and companion. Fear of my utter lack of control to make things different from what they were. Fear that somehow I'd failed along the way. I know that anger is only fear on the offensive. If I want to understand my anger, I don't ask, why am I angry? But instead I ask, what am I afraid of? In the flash of anger I felt toward our dog, I stopped for a moment and finished this statement. I'm angry because I'm afraid of. At that moment, the first answer was that I was afraid of the pain of losing him, of missing his presence. At first, I felt guilty for feeling or being so selfish, but then I gave myself permission to be selfish. That way, I was able to feel and respond to my emotions rather than deflect them. It's okay to be a bit irrational in grief. After all, grief is trauma, and trauma isn't the normal state of being. Our brains function quite differently when we are experiencing intense and traumatic events. The best advice I got in the beginning, when I was being particularly hard on myself, was how would you treat someone going through the same thing you are? Why not be just as compassionate to yourself? I don't think there is any way to truly prepare ourselves for grief, even when we know well in advance that we are going to lose someone or something or some situation. Preparation is not a shield against the emotions that come when the loss occurs. At best, we might be able to desensitize ourselves, but I'm not sure that's very healthy. If there is anything we might do to prepare ourselves, it's this. Always try to be kind. Be kind to yourself. 
Be kind to those around you. Even be kind to those who would hurt or take away from you. Kindness is not weakness. It's easy to be unkind to those you despise, but it takes strength to be kind despite the cruelty of others. In the face of grief, it is acceptance that dulls the pain of loss. I miss everyone who has gone before me. I miss the many animals that I've had and I've been blessed to have in my life. I miss the relationships that have disintegrated or dissipated over the years. I miss all of that because I valued it. But instead of pain and grief, I try to be present at and in this moment and fill those spaces with gratitude that I had people, pets, places, and things to miss in the first place. That's the true gift of acceptance, not as an end to pain, but as a catalyst for gratitude. The pain will be there whenever I want to pick it up. I don't have to always carry it around with me to either honor those I've lost or punish myself for having lost. Acceptance says I have a choice. I have the gift of memories and I have the choice to enjoy them or to suffer from them. There is no right or wrong here. I'm allowed to be joyful and I'm allowed to be miserable. I'm allowed to be whole and I'm allowed to be broken. The greatest gift of all is that I know I have the choice to be how I will be. In each stage of grief, I've tied expectations to them. So then, how does acceptance relate to expectation? In this case, acceptance is my willingness to let go of the expectations that divide me across past, present, and future. Acceptance pulls me back to right now. This moment is the one that counts. We have no guarantee of tomorrow, so every moment is precious. Grief can only come to those who have something cherished, since you can't lose what you've never had. I miss my dog, and that's okay. That just means I had something worth missing. For a few short years, I had an amazing four-legged friend. That's well worth the pain of the grief. When I set out to do this podcast, I'd hoped that I could keep it relatively upbeat. I'm pretty sure this episode is far from that, even though I end it with the offer of hope. There is a way to live a life without any grief or sorrow, but that path isn't for everyone. It requires a mindset completely foreign to how we are trained from childhood. This is the path of pure love. Everything and everyone is of equal value because there is only love. In this way, there is only acceptance and only one moment. There is no past to grieve and no future to worry about. With training and guidance, meditation and practice, anyone can reach and follow this path. You might wonder why, if I know this from experience, I would choose to fall into the pain of grief. Well, that's a great question with a pretty simple answer. In this universe, there must always be balance. There is a finite amount of energy and a finite amount of space. The universe expands because space is decompressing, not because there is more of it, so it remains in balance. Every beginning has an end, and every ending has a beginning. For something to begin, something must end. Our spiritual state is no different. Something must be surrendered for something gained. We are all on a separate path, but many paths run parallel, and many paths intersect. 
As we progress and move our mind and spirit further into the pure power of love, we trade our ability to communicate with most folks. Attachments of all kinds evaporate. This can't be qualified, meaning it's neither good nor bad. It just is. Think about someone like the Dalai Lama. He can be relatable, but how approachable is he? How many people really understand what he's saying? How many people are even interested in the wisdom he shares? I enjoy my attachments as much as I enjoy pure bliss. But that too must balance, and the price I pay for those attachments is the fear of pain or loss. I'm okay with this balance because neither absolute bliss or absolute misery are better or worse than the other. Another way to say this is that a spiritual and emotional state that is immune to fear or pain also lacks passion. Nirvana is free and available to anyone who seeks it, and whether it is a higher, lower, better or worse, is in the eye of the beholder. It's a choice to exist without suffering. Still, there must be balance, and one of the things lost is passion. The price of passion is attachment. The price of attachment is the risk of experiencing grief. So, if we can wrap our heads around the idea that there must always be balance, and if we can grasp and accept that one truth, then we can understand and accept that when we grieve, we do so because we valued what we had more than the pain we feel when we lose it. When we understand that, when we know that's true, then we can accept our grief with joy and gratitude instead of despair. If we value our attachments, and the more attachments we create, the greater the chance that we will be faced with grief. The answer is not to avoid grief by avoiding or eliminating attachments, but to become mindful, to be present, and to let go of our expectations instead. It isn't the loss of attachment that hurts so much as the loss of expectation and illusion of permanence. Release the expectations and release the suffering they cause. It's okay to feel sad when you lose something or someone that is special to you. It's okay to roll through every stage of grief. Just know that you have the power to experience a loss with gratitude rather than despair. There is no right or wrong way to grieve. It's up to you. If you lost or lose someone close to you and don't feel much of anything, well, that's okay too, and there's no shame in it. If you find yourself in grief and you need a break from the pain, bring your mind and your focus into the present. Who are you? Where are you? Feel your heartbeat. Feel the air moving in and out of your lungs. What's the nearest object to you? If thoughts or images of what you've lost come to mind, be thankful for the love in your heart that it represents. Accept that the moment is what it is and not how you may want it to be. Remember that the pain you feel is a reminder that you have been blessed with love and treat yourself with the same compassion that you would offer to someone else who's experiencing what you are. Well, since I've spoken about it so much, I guess the next episode should be about expectations. Hopefully, it will be less of a bummer than this one. If you've made it this far, I am grateful for the time and energy you have given me. 
I am grateful too for those who listen only for a little while. If you got something out of this or think someone else might benefit from what I've said, please share this podcast. Also, please follow or subscribe to It's Just a Thought in your favorite podcast player. If you can like it, like it. If you can rate it, rate it. Every little bit helps spread the message. Finally, always remember that you are loved no matter what.